Where's everybody today? Are we, are we good? Are we awake? Everybody say hello. hello. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, today um, we are going to be looking at an interesting story from the Old Testament this morning uh, that has to do with the prophet Elisha and another guy named Naaman. And this is a bit of a longer story, and so I want to jump into this right away here. But to get us started, let me first ask you this. How often do things in life go exactly as you plan for them to go? Are, are we saying like almost never, right? You know, because we, we all have expectations, right? We all go through life imagining how things are going to be. We all, have, we all have expectations as far as how things should go, right? But things rarely seem to unfold in the way that we might have expected. And this this can make life difficult at times, right? I mean, it can, it can be frustrating when things do not go according to plan. I mean, so, some of the toughest stuff in life is the stuff that happens that we never would have expected, right? That we never could have planned for, the stuff that we never saw coming because it, it catches you off guard and it reveals to us just how little is actually under our control, Right? Well, the story we're going to be looking at this morning is full of these kinds of surprises, okay? There's all kinds of stuff in here uh, that goes against what you might have expected to happen, okay? But in the end, it brings us to something that's pretty special as well. And so let's take a look at this together. We're going to be in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning, and I'll have all the passages uh, on, on the screen here. But look at how this story begins. This is verse 1. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Okay, and so right off the bat, we're introduced to this guy named Naaman, right? And who is Naaman? Well, we're told that he is a commander of the army of Aram, or, or some translations will render this as Syria, as, as the army of Syria. Um, and we see that Naaman is a great man in the eyes of his king, that he's highly regarded. And again, why? Well, because Naaman apparently is a, is a guy who can get the job done, right? He, he has won victories on behalf of Aram, okay? But here is where our expectations get challenged right out of the gate here. Because within the context of the Bible, who is this nation of Aram or nation of Syria? Does anybody know? Like within the Bible, are they the good guys or are they the bad guys? They're the bad guys, right? And so here we are reading through a section of recorded history from the Jewish scriptures. And how does this story begin? Who's the main character of this story? It's the enemy, right? It, Naaman is a commanding officer who oversees and leads the troops of the enemy. And so here is surprise number one. Instead of points, we're going to have surprises this morning. And surprise number one is this is not our story. This is God's story. And in God's story, there is room for everyone. Okay, because, again, try to think of this in, like, contemporary terms. If we were telling this story today, this would be like us beginning a story where the main character of the story is, like, I don't know, maybe an al-Qaeda leader, some head honcho from within ISIS, 
uh, the Taliban, maybe Hamas, right? I mean, whoever you might designate as being our enemy today, that's the main character here, right? And so do you see how radical this is on the front end, right? Because remember, this guy, Naaman, he's highly regarded by his king because of his victories, right? And so this is a guy who's done some real damage. I mean, not only is he an enemy, he's a very effective enemy, right? And did you happen to catch who these victories are actually attributed to? Let let me go back to our first verse again, because who gave these military victories to Aram through this Naaman? It says the Lord did, right? The God of Israel. Right? So again, imagine how shocking this would be to read this as a Jew, right? The God of Israel gave victory to Israel's enemies? What? Right? Again, this is not how you would expect this story to go. You, you with me so far? Okay, and then the last thing that we're told here is, is this name, and as, as impressive as he is, he also has leprosy. Okay, but again, this is a story about the enemy. And so are we feeling sorry for Naaman at this point? Are we rooting for this guy? Probably not, right? But the story continues. Verse 2 goes on to say, Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Okay, and so here is where we find kind of the connection point for the original readers, right? Because here we've got this young girl from Israel who apparently has been taken captive during one of the raids done by the Syrian army. Because, you know, like, as the nation of Syria would go forth and and conquer new areas, it was not uncommon for them to take prisoners along the way. You know, they would typically kill the men, but when it came to the weaker members of society, you know, the elderly, the children, and even the women, they would often just take them and make them slaves. Okay, But, but again... Reading this through the eyes of the original audience, again, this young girl from Israel, she's one of us, right? She's the one that we can connect to here. But, but what do we see here? We see that she's one of the victims, right? That she's one of them that has been captured and is now enslaved, and she is serving within the household of this Naaman. And so are we feeling any love for this Naaman at all at this point? Not at all, right? But let's keep going here. Verse 3. You know, and now, you know, we meet this slave girl from Israel, and here's the first thing she said. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. <laughs> now, is this what you would expect to see in this story? Is this the obvious way that this story should go? I mean, not at all, because, again, this Naaman, he might have leprosy, but, again, he's the enemy. So who cares? Right? You know, I mean, I mean you know, so, so to hear this slave girl from Israel say, I think I can help Naaman. I think I know of a way that he can be cured. Again, that's not the way I would expect this story to go. Right? Because think about it. If you were captured by the Taliban, or if your daughter was captured by the Taliban, would you want her to help the Taliban? Would you want her to try to be a blessing to them? I mean, again, that's typically not our default position. Right? And yet that's exactly what's happening here. Right? So that brings us to surprise number two for the morning right away. Surprise number two is to follow God means that we are to seek the blessing of everyone, even 
right? Because again, that's what we're seeing in this story, that this Jewish slave girl wants to bless this person who has enslaved her. I mean, this, this is nuts, right? But, but as you go through the Bible, I mean, especially as you look at the teachings of Jesus, this is one of those uncomfortable teachings that tends to come up time and time again, right? Like, like look at these passages. I'm guessing both of these will sound very familiar to you. But like, uh, first off, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have Jesus saying, again, you have heard it said that love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You know, Jesus is saying, you want to look like God? You want to be one of God's children? Well, then love your enemies. You know, and then in the same way, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul pretty much says the same idea, right? He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, right? And so even though this young girl from Israel has been captured and enslaved by the Syrian army who's under the control of this Naaman, right? It's like she's, she's still looking out for him, right? She, she still wants to bless and not curse. She wants to do good for him rather rather than harm, right? It's like, at one level, it's like she is living out her calling as a daughter of Abraham. She's living out her calling as a, as a follower of this God who actually does desire to bless all nations, who wants to draw all people to himself. So again, radical stuff here, right? Not what we would expect. Okay, but let's keep working through the story. Verse 4 goes on to tell us that Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 cents of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Right? And so Naaman brings this idea to his king, and his king basically says, Yeah, go for it. I'll I'll even write you a letter of recommendation. Right? And so Naaman heads off for Israel. and, And notice as he leaves, he's bringing a ton of stuff with him. Right? All kinds of gold and silver and fine clothing. And, and, and why is he bringing all of this valuable stuff with him, do you think? Well, the idea here is that when it comes to health care, health care has never been cheap. <laughs> okay? And so he's thinking, if I'm going to get healed here, if this prophet in Israel is actually going to do something to cure me of my leprosy, well, this is going to cost me something. Right? And so he's going prepared because he knows money makes the world go round. Right? And... Uh, we see that that Naaman, he he travels all the way to the king of Israel, right? Which would have been a fairly lengthy journey. We're talking at least multiple days here, okay? But what he's really hoping is that that he's going to get there and that the king of Israel will grant him his request, right? So here's what happens. Verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? I mean, why does this fellow send somebody to me to be cured of his leprosy? I mean, see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? Right? And so, so whatever Naaman w- 
was hoping for here, whatever he was expecting, I'm guessing this wasn't it, right? Because as soon as the king of Israel reads this letter that has to do with healing Naaman of his leprosy, he just comes unglued here, right? He's like, what, are they just looking for a fight? Because it's like they're asking the impossible of me. Do they want to start a war? Is, is that what this is about? Because I'm not God. What can I possibly do to help this guy with this leprosy? Right? And so initially, it looks like Naaman has traveled all this way for nothing. Right? But then, somehow, news of this visit and news of Naaman's strange request here somehow makes its way back to the prophet that the slave girl from Israel originally referred to. And this is where we finally get to meet this Elisha. Okay? So next, it says this, verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And so, again, Elisha hears about what's going on here, and he says, no, just send him my way. I'll take care of it. Right? Which, again, the amazing implication here is that Elisha is actually going to heal this guy. Right? That he's going to cure this enemy of Israel, again, a Taliban leader in our own context. He's going to cure him of his leprosy. Right? And that through this, Naaman will come to see that Elisha is a genuine prophet of God. Again, not how you would expect this story to go. Okay? And so Naaman heads on over to the home of Elisha. And again, keep in mind, this would have been a sight to see. Okay? Because, again, when Naaman travels from one place to another, this is a big deal. We're talking about a whole caravan here, right? Like, it refers to the idea that he rides in with all of his horses and chariots. And then even beyond that, there would have been a whole line of mules that was carrying all that wealth that he brought with him. Right? And so this would have been a whole parade. And... Keep in mind that Naaman, again, Naaman was an important man, right? And so he, wherever he went, he was used to being received with great honor, with great dignity, uh, received with extravagance, right? Wherever he went, it was, notice me, honor me, because I'm here, right? But, but look at what happens here. Moving on to verse 10, Naaman and his whole entourage arrive at Elisha's door, and then it says, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Now, before we look at the next verse here, let me ask you, how well do you think that this so-called reception is going to go over with Naaman? I mean, is is this what Naaman would have been expecting, just Elisha to send a messenger Right? I mean, was this, was this normal? Was this acceptable? And no, again, th- this would have been a huge insult within the culture of that time. Right? Because notice, the prophet Elisha doesn't even come down to meet Naaman or greet Naaman at all. Right? He just sends a messenger. And then, to just send him away to some Jordan River, right? I mean, it, it's not like the Jordan River was close by. It's not like the Jordan was just running through Elisha's backyard or something. No, this would have been another full day's travel, at least, to get there. Okay, and then, what's with the deal of being, you know, dunked in this river seven times to be cleansed? Isn't that a little bit redundant? Right? 
You know, now, of course, we might know some of the significance behind using that number, right? I mean, th- throughout the scriptures, the number seven all often has some deeper meaning, some deeper significance when it comes to having faith in God or having faith in what God will do, right? Like when you think of when the people of Israel were told to march around the city of Jericho, how many days did they need to march around that city before the walls fell? Seven times, right? And there's tons of examples like that all throughout the scriptures. And so this number seven certainly has this divine aspect to it within Jewish understanding. Okay, but again, is Naaman, is Naaman Jewish? Would he have understood the divine significance of this number? And probably not, right? So Naaman's got to be thinking, what is the deal here? Right? There's no formal greeting. I'm not received with the proper extravagance at all. And now he just sends his messenger. And then from there, he tells me to go dunk myself in some random river that's going to take me a full day to get to. I mean, this is not what I had in mind. Right? And that's exactly what we see as we continue the story here. Verse 11. It says, But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in a rage. Right? And so Naaman storms off at this point because, again, he was expecting something very, very different. Right? I mean, again, he likely expected there to be some kind of a elaborate religious ceremony where the local holy man would come down to him and proclaim some holy words over him, perform some holy gestures, and take care of his leprosy right then and there. Right? But instead, he's thinking, I'm just supposed to leave and travel to some river, again, travel a full day, and then dunk myself seven times? You know, again, couldn't I have done this from home? Aren't our waters back home far better than the waters in Israel anyways? And so Naaman is ticked, right? This is not what he signed up for. And we've all been there, right? You know, where we invest ourselves in something. We, we pour our whole selves into something. We, we envision things to go a certain way only to have it all fall. Right? And we're like, what, what is this? This is not what I had in mind. Right? Anybody ever feel so undone when your expectations fall apart that you storm off in a rage like this? Right? I mean, and when things don't go our way, when, when things don't line up with our preconceived expectations, we're often so quick to throw up our hands and just, just say, forget the whole thing, Ben. I'm just done. Right? And, and why is that? Because, you know, at a cognitive level, and an intellectual level, we would all affirm that God is big, right? That God is way bigger than we are. We, we, would, all, we would all agree that the options available to God are far more numerous than the, the options that are available just to us, right? Because we all know that with God, all things are possible, right? Don't we all know this verse? How many people have this verse on a, like a coffee mug or a refrigerator magnet or something, Right? You know, and yet in the real world, in our day-to-day lives, we're so quick to forget this or to ignore it 
You know, where our perspective quickly becomes so limited and our imagination becomes so small, right? Which is why God has to remind us time and time again where he says, trust me, right? He has to tell us that there are actually more options at his disposal. Time and time again, God is seeking to move us from our expectations to instead that we would live with a sense of expectancy. Okay, which brings us to uh, surprise number three this morning, which is this, that expectations will always limit what is possible. But to live with expectancy means that anything is possible. Because, you know, know, we, we tend to go into virtually every situation with a set of expectations, don't we? That this is how things should go. This is how things are supposed to be. This is what's supposed to happen. But God wants to teach us to live with a sense of expectancy. He wants us to trust that he's in control, that he's big, that he's big enough. Right? Where instead of measuring everything that happens against our own bar of what was supposed to happen, God invites us to engage life with a sense of wonder, with a sense of anticipation where he invites us to see all of the endless possibilities where instead of constantly thinking this is what God should do, God wants us to engage the world with a sense of let's see what God will do. You know, and by saying this, I do not mean to minimize the very real hardships that we often go through in life, where where we have endured great loss, where we have been confronted with, with very devastating heartache. I mean, I know this world can knock us to the ground, where there seems to be no way forward, where there seems to be no satisfying answers this side of eternity, and I totally get that. Okay, but even in the midst of such heartache, maybe especially in the midst of such heartache, I want us to see the difference between expectations and expectancy. Okay? Because expectations will always limit what can be done or what should be done, whereas living in expectancy begins to open up all kinds of other possibilities. Okay? And so even when things seem to be completely over, that all hope is lost, maybe, just maybe, God is still big enough Maybe, just maybe, there's more to the story. Maybe, just maybe, there's another way forward that we just haven't been able to imagine quite yet. That's all I'm suggesting. Okay? But getting back to Naaman, Naaman's not there yet, right? He just stormed off in a rage, right? But then we come to this. Verse 13. It says, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, Would you not have done it? Well, how much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Right? Now, now, who's ever experienced this kind of thing before where where somebody else comes and steps in at just the right moment and says exactly what you needed to hear to restore just a little bit of perspective? You with me? You know, because that's what we see here. You know, Naaman, Naaman is ready to throw in the towel. He's done at this point. But then his servants come up to him and say, Master, if this prophet would have commanded you to do something really, really difficult, wouldn't you have done it? 
If he would have asked you to do something that was really, really hard, wouldn't you have followed through on that? Right? And so why not do this easy thing that he's asking of you, right? I mean, you've come all this way, and honestly, the Jordan River is kind of on our way home anyways, right? And so you might as well give it a shot. What what do you got to lose? Right? And there's wisdom in that. Right? I mean, sometimes we just need that extra voice, that outside voice that creates a little bit of space for us to gather our thoughts, to calm our nerves, and to just breathe for a minute. Sometimes we just need to breathe for a minute before we jump into action, right? And that's what, what, what Naaman does. He takes this breath, and he does decide to give this a go. And then we read this, verse 14. It says, So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Right? And so Naaman takes this day trip over to the Jordan. He does exactly what the prophet of Israel had told him to do. He decides to trust. And what's the result? Healing. Right? And, and you've got to love the way that this gets described. That after washing seven times, that his skin was healed to the point that it was like skin of a young boy. Not, not aged skin. Not weather-worn skin. Young boy skin. You know, you talk about restoration, Right? You know, and again, I'm guessing that this went way beyond Naaman's wildest expectations, right? Because again, our expectations always seem to have limits. Our expectations always have boundaries, but to live with expectancy, again, means anything. So, Naaman gets miraculously healed. Okay, but now, having traveled all the way to the Jordan River... He's also about a fourth of the way home at this point. And so what should he do at this point, right? I mean, should he return and go back to see the prophet once again? Because the prophet didn't tell him to come back afterwards. And in fact, if you remember, the prophet Elisha didn't even come out to see him, didn't even come out to greet him at all, right? And so Naaman could just say, well, to heck with it. I got what I wanted and head on home, right? But at the same time, this is kind of a big deal. Right? And so what should he do? Well, Naaman does decide to head on back to see the prophet once again. And this time, he actually does get to see him. This is what happens. Verse 15. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And so please, accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve... I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Right? And so Naaman finally gets this face-to-face meeting with the prophet that he expected to get earlier. Right? And, and look at the impact that this whole experience has had on him. Right? He says, now I know there is no God in all the world except for in Israel. Right? I mean, not only does Naaman affirm that this prophet is a genuine prophet. Not only does he affirm that the God of Israel is a real and legitimate God, now he's saying, no, the God of Israel is actually the only God. The only God that there is, which would have been a huge statement coming from this pagan commander, right? Who, for for the totality of his life, likely would have believed in and worshipped multiple gods, right? But after what Naaman has now experienced firsthand for himself, It's like this God of Israel thing 
is unlike anything he's ever experienced before. Right? I mean, none of those other so-called gods could even get close to this because this was something different. This was something new. Right? Because when all you have ever experienced is a substitute, when all you have ever known is a counterfeit, but then you finally come across the real thing, what happens in moments like that? And it changes your world. Right? It's unmistakable. You're ruined from that point on, right? I mean, like, has anybody here ever done the church thing or the religious thing for years and years, and then one day you actually come across Jesus? You come to know Jesus, right? Again, there's no mistaking it, right? There's no comparison. Once you taste the real thing, there's no going back. You can never untaste again, right? You're ruined for life, and you no longer want to waste a single moment on that counterfeit. Substitute, no thank you. And that's what's happened to Naaman here. He is now ruined for his old religion. He's now ruined for all of those old gods. There's no going back because he has now experienced the real thing. And so Naaman, Naaman wants to give Elisha some kind of compensation, right? He wants to give him some kind of a gift for what he's done. But this is where we come to kind of another shock, right? Because what happens Elisha refuses to take anything, right? Which is another way that this story completely challenges our normal expectations because when has the church ever refused to take money from anybody, right? You know, it's like, this can't be a true story, but that's what happens. Elisha refuses to take anything. And why? Well, I think what's happening here is that Elisha is showing Naaman that the real thing can't be. Right? That when it comes to the blessing of God, that's not something you can purchase. That's not something you can pay for. You know, while money and wealth might give you a lot of power and influence within this broken world, that is not how the kingdom of God works. And so Elisha refuses any kind of gift. And then we read this, though. Next thing that Naaman says is, Well, if you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Right? And so Naaman is turning this around now. He says, okay, if you're not going to take anything from me, well then let me have something from you. Right? But, but what does Naaman want? He wants a bunch of dirt. Right? As much dirt as a couple of mules can carry. Now what is this about? Why, why does he want some dirt? Well, What's likely happening here is this goes back to Naaman's understanding about the gods and how you would worship the gods, okay? Because while Naaman has just affirmed that the God of Israel is the only God in all the world, like we said, Naaman has grown up within a, within a culture of multiple gods, okay? And the typical understanding was that gods were territorial gods, okay? That each nation or each region would have gods of their own, right? And so there were the gods of Aram, the gods of Syria. There would have been the gods of Egypt. And now we're talking about the god of Israel, right? But within this understanding, where did the god of Israel dwell? Like if you wanted to go and worship the god of Israel, where would you have to go? You would have to go to the land of Israel, right? And, and so, um, you know, because the god of Israel would have lived, he would have dwelled within a certain patch of dirt, 
within a certain area. And so Naaman is thinking that in order to worship this God back home in Syria, well, what do I need to do? Well, I need to bring some of this land, some of this ground home with me. Right? You see the idea? I mean, Naaman would likely bring this Israel dirt back home with him, and then he'd spread it out somewhere. He'd put it in his yard, maybe build an altar out of it to sacrifice upon, or whatever. But the idea is in order to worship this God, in order to worship the God of Israel, I somehow need to be within the land of Israel, and so I'm going to bring some of that land back home with me. Does that kind of make sense? All right. But I think we all know that this is not how things really are, right? I mean, does Naaman really need to bring some Israel dirt back home with him in order to worship the God of Israel? Or is this a God that can be worshipped from anywhere, right? And yeah, God is God of all the earth. I mean, Naaman himself just said there is no other God in all the world except the God of Israel, right? And so Naaman's beliefs here, with regard to how to worship this God. His, his theology, his doctrine, is actually way off track. Right? And yet, does the prophet Elisha feel the need to correct Naaman on this? And say, oh, you've got it all wrong, buddy. Actually, no. You know, and so we have to remember that, that correct theology is important. Okay? Correct theology does have its place, but surprisingly... God never seems to be in a huge rush to make sure that we are doctrinally correct about everything. You know, God's not all that uptight if we don't have all the right answers. And this brings us to our final surprise for the morning. Surprise number four is right answers are important. Okay, but the journey, our journey with God is more important. You know, because while we tend to want all the right answers right now, right, and while we often feel the need to correct somebody else where we feel like, oh, they, well, they've got the wrong answer, again, God seems perfectly fine with allowing us to kind of just figure things out as we go, right? He, he often lets us continue forward for quite some time with some pretty flawed theology, right? He's not in a huge rush. It's, it's like he meets us wherever we are, and then he'll show us new things when we're ready to learn. Right? Because for God, us having correct theology is actually not the point. Okay? Connection with God is the point. Walking with God is the point. Having a relationship with God, knowing God is the point. And if we have that, well, God seems to trust that us having correct theology will actually just kind of take care of itself. You know? In fact, we can see this come through all the more as we read the rest of the story here, real quick. Because this is what happens next. Naaman only wants to worship the God of Israel from this point on, right? But then he says this. He says, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant. Right? And so when Naaman heads home, again, part of what his position is going to require of him is he's going to have to accompany his king into the temple of their god to worship. Right? And apparently he even needs to help his king bow down in order to do this, which causes Naaman to bow down as well, right? which kind of makes it look like Naaman is worshiping Rimmon right alongside his king. Right? And so, so Naaman 
is seeking forgiveness for this, right? Because he now knows that the God of Israel is the only God that there is. He now knows that he can no longer worship any of those other gods, right? But he also knows what his job is going to require of him, right? He knows he's going to be going into that temple. He's going to be bowing down with his king. And so he's putting it all out there. He's saying, this is the way it is. And he's asking for forgiveness, okay? But once again, while we might be quick to correct a guy like this, Right? While, while we might be quick to condemn this kind of behavior and say, uh-uh, no, no, no. If, you, if you're going to follow this God, if you're going to be faithful to this God, well, you need to be all in. You need to start counting the cost. Right? It's all or nothing. Right? But look at how the prophet Elisha responds. This is the last verse. He simply says, go in peace. Go in peace. Go in the shalom of God. Go and may the peace of God be with you. Right? It's as if Elisha, instead of trying to micromanage Naaman's every decision, instead of trying to correct him on every single point, instead of handing Naaman a whole checklist of here's the things you can do as a follower of this God, and here's all the things you can't do as a follower of this God, it's as if Elisha is releasing Naaman to take the adventure for himself. Go figure it out. Do what you got to do. Keep learning along the way. But the, the, the main thing is that you're with this God. Follow this God. Go in peace because God is with you. You know, and if you're actually connecting with the one true God, well, then you're good. Go in peace. You don't need to sweat every little thing because a lot of that will just take care of itself. Because, you know, how often do we feel the need to play the role of the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. Anybody ever done that? Right? Where you feel like, i, I got to correct them on this. Right? i, I, I got to say, you, you can't do that. These are the things you can do, and you can't do that, and don't even think about that. Right? You know, but again, we're right back to our expectations. This is what we think. This is how things should be. But here, Alicia shows us that following God is actually the main thing. It's not about always having the one right answer. It's not always about having perfect doctrine. It's not about micromanaging every decision or every behavior because God's grace is bigger than you. God is more present than we could ever imagine. He is big enough to guide us even when we might have it wrong. The important thing is that we're walking with Him because, again, like it or not, real life is messy. And it's full of surprises, both good and bad, and it rarely lines up with our expectations. And so may we let go of our need to always be right. May we let go of our need to always have the one right answer about everything. May we move from a place of having expectations about everything and everyone, and may we learn more and more how to live in expectancy, trusting that God is good, trusting that God is present, and that he can still do things that we can't even begin to imagine. You know, instead of living with the constant frustration of, again, this is what God should be, may we learn to embrace the anticipation and the wonder of saying, let's see what God will do. Amen? All right. Well, please, no, no, no closing song this morning. I'll just have you stand, and I'll close us in a brief word of prayer. Father God, again, just help us to let go 
of all of our endless expectations. Lord, help us to learn to trust you and help us to move through this world with a sense of expectancy, knowing that you are infinitely good and knowing that you have infinite options at your disposal. And then, Lord, also help us to know when we do need to take a stand, when we do need to take a stand for truth, when we should say something, when we do need to correct somebody, and also help us to know when we can just release that and say, go in peace. And so, Lord, thank you for being God so that we don't have to be. And help us to rest in that more and more each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much. It's been a blessing.